If you have your Bible, go ahead and get it open to the book of Colossians with me today. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. We're in a nine-part series called Jesus is the Answer for Everything. And so I want to invite you today to jump in. We're going to be in Colossians chapter one today. So feel free to have that open in front of you. If you've got a Bible app with you, we do have Bibles we'd love to offer you today. They're on the table in here. If you're joining us in the satellite room and the back table back by where communion was, feel free to grab one back there as well. Uh, if you're new with us, let me kind of bring you up to speed as to where we're in in the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians Colossians is written by a guy by the name of Paul, all right? And Paul is in prison as he's writing to this church in Colossae. And he's writing to this church in Colossae from a prison cell. He's never met these people. In fact, Paul actually converted one guy in this town of Ephesus, and this guy in Ephesus goes back to Colossae and says, hey, we're going to start a church. And so he runs into, into Colossae and starts this church. And so Paul is writing to this group of people in Colossae. Again, he's never met them, will not meet them, and he's writing them to encourage them. He's writing them because he has a thought in his heart and his mind that he needs to encourage them because there's some false teachers running around Colossae saying that Jesus is not enough for them. That Jesus isn't enough, that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't simply enough. And so Paul is writing, he's encouraging them so that they might grow and mature in their faith. And last week we had an opportunity to hear from Hester. How many of you guys enjoyed listening to Hester last week? Great job, Hester. Great job. Hester did a phenomenal job, this beautiful exaltation in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, that just, I don't know about you, it just leads you into worship, doesn't it? It just leads you into worship because what Paul is doing in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, is he's explaining what Jesus has done for us. And in that moment, you're just automatically wrapped up in what Jesus has done for you, that it just kind of leads you into this moment of saying, Jesus, I don't care where we need to go. I don't care what we need to do. I am all in with you. And that's what we talked about in 15 through 23 last week. And Paul kind of flips the script a little bit in verse 23, and he says, I'm on mission for Jesus. See, Paul's modern day, he was, he was a tent maker, so modern day he would have been like an engineer, but for whatever reason, in all of scripture, you never see him talk about him being the tent maker. He's never Paul the tent maker, right? In scripture, he's on mission for Jesus. The moment we're introduced to him, he is on mission for him. He devotes himself to a work. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this work that he devotes himself to. And I'm going to challenge us as individuals in this place today, and those of you joining us in our satellite room as well today, I'm going to, I'm going to invite you today to jump on mission with Paul and what Paul is talking about. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 2, 5. Now here's the deal. We're not going to put this scripture on screen to start It'll be on screen later, but I want you to just kind of listen in and hear the words that Paul is going to, to, to say to us today as a church. So here's what he says. Verse 24, he says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue in his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but has now been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, the Gentiles. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and I struggle so hard depending upon Christ's mighty power that works within me. 
And I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church of Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with their well-crafted arguments. For though I am far from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and your faith in Christ is strong. Isn't that encouraging? Paul's leaning into this group of people. Again, he's never met them. He's in a prison cell. And he can say a lot of stuff in a prison cell, right? But instead, he's, he's pouring into this church. He's pouring into this group of people he's never met. And he's trying to encourage them to allow them to see that, yes, what Jesus has done for them is fully enough. And so he's going to give them three characteristics that are going to find this mission. To jump on mission with Jesus, he's going to give us three characteristics. And then after these characteristics, he's going to give us some motivations. That if you jump on mission with Jesus, some things are going to happen inside of you. There's going to be some changes that take place inside of you. And so he's going to guide us through that today. So the first characteristic is this. It is God appointed. It is God appointed. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, check out what he says again. He says this. He says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. God's given me this ability. God's given me this responsibility to go out and to tell others about the gospel message that Jesus Christ came and lived and died on the cross for my sin and for yours. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter where you've gone. Jesus has given me this responsibility Now, if you know anything about his conversion, Paul's conversion, let's go back and let's talk about that for a second. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Acts chapter 9 and just look at it real quick with me. In Acts chapter 9, long before he is Paul, he's actually a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul had it all, right? He had fame. He had fortune. He he was self-righteous. He was godless. He he was a, a Christian murdering individual. His sole goal on this earth was actually to destroy this seedling called Christianity. Because Jesus had came, he had lived, he had died, he had resurrected, he had went around and, and told everybody about how he was going to create a place for us, a kingdom for us. And, and Saul hears about this, and Saul's going, no, 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 no. I don't believe any of this stuff. And so he's out to kill Christians. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, Saul's on his way from Jerusalem north. And he's headed towards Syria to, to this town called Damascus. And he's headed there to arrest as many Christians as he possibly can. And halfway there, Saul gets blinded by a light. And through the light, it's actually Jesus, resurrected Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I don't know what your first encounter with Jesus was like, but this one radically changed the trajectory of Paul's life immediately. Jesus appears to him, and the first thing he does is he points out his sin in his life. See, Saul thought this was righteous persecution, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. You are a direct enemy of mine. And in that moment, he turns towards Jesus and he receives grace and mercy. Jesus extends to him a righteousness that he did not deserve. Jesus extends to him a grace that he doesn't earn. And eventually Saul changes his name to Paul. And in that moment of salvation, he's given this new commission that where he's received grace, where he's received this mercy, where he's received this love, he's now willing to share it with others, to extend it to others. 
And any of us in this same room that, that have that same kind of feeling that we've been extended grace that we didn't deserve, been extended mercy we didn't deserve, our goal, as Paul is calling us out here, our goal is to extend that to others. This is why he says in verse 29, that's why I work so hard and I struggle so hard depending upon Christ's mighty power that works within me. See, it's so easy for us to hear this and say, oh, I got to get on mission with God. And so to get on mission with God, I've got to go out and I've got to tell other people about Jesus. I got to go and do this and do this and this and this and this. And Paul hones us back in and says, yes, you have to, but here's the truth. It's only by God's mighty power that you get to see that work done. And so are you prayerfully going after God in the midst of that? Are, are you bringing it before God? Not just saying, I have to do this because God calls me to, but actually going before him on your knees and praying to him and saying, God, would you continue to open doors for me? Because if it's a God-given mission, if it's God-appointed, we've got to use God in the midst of it. Number two is this. It's self-sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing. Verse 24, this is, what, this is what Paul says. Again, he's in prison. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul's leaning into your life and mine. He's leaning into this church in Colossae. And he's saying, hey, if you're gonna follow Jesus, if you're gonna be on mission with Jesus, it's going to cost you something. It's gonna cost you something. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter four, Peter actually talks about how we have the privilege. We have the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. In Romans eight, it says, we must be willing to suffer. That persecution comes from advancing the gospel. That when Paul's writing this, he's chained to a prison wall. He's about ready to be beheaded by Nero. And he's saying, hey, the way to the crown is through the cross. There will be suffering that will take place. This past week, I had someone define me with a word. And I know that, that many of you could probably define me with lots of words. You could probably pick a word and be like, yeah, that defines Ryan. That's pretty good, right? You know, like some of you might define me. You might say, Ryan is short, right? And that's a good definition because I am, right? Some of you might go, well, Ryan is bald, right? That's a good definition. Ryan is bald. Ryan is Odd, right? That might be another great definition. Uh, some of you might, you know, define me in one word. Ryan is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly good looking, right? Some of you are like, that's more than one word. I know, and I'm okay with that. But I had somebody this last week, dear friend of mine, uh, they, they identified me and they said, Ryan, when I look at you, I see long suffering. <laughs> what does that mean, right? Like, I don't even know what that means. What do you, and I must have had deer in headlights look. I mean, just one of those like, what? <laughs> they sent me an email and they gave me a definition. I, I want to read it to you, okay? It says this. Long suffering is the quality of patiently tolerating the actions of others against us, even when we're severely tried. And I read that and immediately my mind went to this message. Immediately my mind went to this guy who's in prison trying to encourage a group of people and he's long-suffering, right? The reason he is long-suffering, the reason he's willing to put up with the actions of others is so that the church might grow in number. The reason he's willing to give up his body is what he says, is that you might hear the gospel. He says, I consider it a joy. He's been beaten and battered and shipwrecked and stoned. He's been drugged in and out of city walls, and yet he's coming before this group of people, and he's saying, hey, it's all a joy. Even at the expense of his own inconvenience, he considers it a joy. 
See, advancing the gospel, getting on mission with this God-appointed gift that God has given us to go and to spread his word is self-sacrificing. See, if you're gonna live on mission for God, you might have to actually give up some of your pride. If you're gonna live on mission for God, you might actually have to give up some of your friends because they might not fully understand why it is that you're living the way that you're living and talking the way that you're talking and going about your business the way you're going about your business. If you're gonna live on mission for God the way that God has called you to, you might actually have to give up some of your time and serve him in some capacities and some areas that you didn't expect to. If you're gonna be on mission with God the way that God has called us to, you might actually, actually have to get generous with your resources. If you're gonna get, get on mission with God the way that God has called us to in this self-sacrificing way, you might have to give up some of your comfortability and some of your convenience. So that's why I love the Otis Orchards campus. For those of you in this room that don't know about it, in September, we're launching a campus in Otis Orchards. And there's a group of people, there's about 50 families right now. Those of you joining us in the Otis campus today or in the satellite room, we are so thankful you were joining us there today. There's about 50 families who have said, you know what? We're willing to give up the willing to give up the comfortability and the convenience of this space that we have here because there's a group of people in Otis Orchards that needs to hear about Jesus. And so we're willing to go there and do what we've done here over there. And we're looking for another 50 families who'd be willing to give up their comfortability and give up their convenience in the same way to say, you know what? It's not about coming and sitting in here. It's not about being comfortable in this place. It's about spreading the good news. It's about spreading the gospel. And so I want to invite you to do that. It's self-sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing to realize and recognize there are people in this world who need Jesus. And so let's show them Jesus. Which brings us to the third thing is this. It's Christ-centered. See, if we're going to show people Jesus, we, we have to be Christ-centered. Verse 26 and 27. This message was kept secret. Keep that word in there. Secret for centuries and generations past, but has now been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, the Gentiles, too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. See, whenever you come across this word secret in here, it's actually this word can be translated mystery. It can be translated mystery. And it's not some riddle that we can't solve. It's always been there. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's this idea that this secret has been there the entire time. It's this, this mystery that's been there. And it's this mystery of who Jesus is. It's this mystery of what Jesus is going to do. And it's going to come through a person. It's not going to come through our deeds. And what Paul is saying to this church in Colossae, and what he's saying to you and I today, is that Jesus is the answer for everything. See, that, that's all I got. You, you, you got a problem in your life? Jesus. You're, you're dealing with this? Jesus. He comes back and puts Christ in the center of everything and says the secret is this, that Christ lives in you. Let me hit pause for a second because some of you, that's all you needed to hear today. You walked in here today and you've been carrying some burdens, you've been carrying some weight, you've been carrying lots of stuff in this place today and I just want to say to you today, Christ lives in you. So if those are the three characteristics, what are the motivations? What do we get when we get behind the mission? The first one is this. We get maturity in Christ. We get maturity in Christ. Verse 28 says this. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. And we want to present to them 
to God, or present to them God perfect. That word perfect can actually be translated maturity in their relationship to Christ. And, and that word maturity can actually be translated end game. End game. That we would have the end game in mind. That the way that we live and the way that we talk and the way that we act and the way that we do business with others would be a way that has the end game in mind. Not, not just the next day, but the end game in mind. That when we said yes to Jesus, it wasn't some uh, get out of hell free card, right? It wasn't just walk down an aisle and grab hell insurance. It wasn't some transaction with Jesus. Instead, it was a transformation in Jesus. That Jesus saves and Jesus sanctifies and then Jesus sends. And that's why our mission statement here at VRL is to be and make disciples. It's not just about being. It's not just about saying yes to Jesus and then living our merry way. It's about saying yes to Jesus and then showing others who Jesus is by the way that we live and talk and act. That we might mature in who we are. That there's a reprioritization in our life and show people who he is based on how we are prioritizing our everyday life. It's easy, isn't it, to see when someone's being immature? It's easy to look at someone and say, that person is really, really immature. For instance, if today I were to go to Walmart with my five-year-old son, and with my five-year-old son, we go to Walmart, and he is dressed in his Halloween costume, you might say, well, that's normal. He's five, right? But let's, let's play it another way. Let's say that we go to Walmart today, and instead of him being dressed in his Batman suit, here is Ryan dressed in his Batman suit. You would look at me, and you would think, that guy is incredibly immature, right? or the coolest dad in the world. I don't know. <laughs> but it's easy to see when someone's being immature, right? In fact, I found a video this past week of some people being immature. Check this out. I'm done. I'm done. Then wipe and flush. <sighs> Get off the table. Hey, look, look at my phone. I can't, I can't, look. I'm, I'm driving. Just look at it. Just look. Just look. Look what I found. Stop. I'm, dr I'm trying to concentrate. I found something, though. Look. Look at it. It's easy, right? It's easy to see when someone is being immature. Don't you think it's true, though, that if we're going to say we're followers of Jesus, that people can probably spot out our immaturities as well? The people probably look at us and say, well, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you shouldn't talk like that. Maybe you shouldn't act like that. Maybe you shouldn't be like that. See, it's easy for us to watch that video and to laugh and to say, yeah, those, that person's very immature. That person's acting like a toddler. And yet how true is it for us? And so, so many of us, myself included, we have to reprioritize some things in our life, right? And the reality is we're not fully aware of how spiritually immature we come across. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says this. He says, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. And Paul has the same heart for this Corinthian church that he has for this church in Colossae. He is nervous about them listening to the false teachers. He's nervous about them listening to their own self-talk and the doubt that begins to creep up inside of them. And so he's challenging them. He's saying you need to rise up. He's saying you need to mature. And he's rooting them on. He's encouraging them. That's the second quality. It's this, that we might have encouragement in Christ. Check out what he says in verse two. 
He says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. It could be said this way. Discouragement breeds doubt. Encouragement brings assurance. Discouragement breeds doubt. Encouragement brings assurance. See, what Paul is really trying to get at with this church in Colossae is he is saying, I want to encourage you. I don't want you to listen to these false teachers who are saying that Jesus isn't enough. That's not the goal here. The goal is to encourage you to understand that when Jesus Christ came and lived and died, that was plenty And that same thing can be said here today, that my hope for you is that you walk out of here encouraged, not beaten down, but walked out of here encouraged that what Christ has done in your life is enough. See, nobody walked in here today and went, you know what I'd love to do today? I'd love to get discouraged, right? Like you didn't walk in today going, please discourage me. No. You want encouragement. I want encouragement. We all want encouragement. Encouragement will be the driver for us to put our faith in him even more. Encouragement brings assurance that what Jesus has done is enough. About a week and a half ago, I had the opportunity to go to a conference. And I say conference with with air quotes on it because it, it was really kind of disguised counseling. Let's just call it what it was. So I fly to California, and I get to California, this thing, it's called ultimate leadership. And so I I have this idea that I'm going to go, and I'm going to become a better leader, because I'm going to this thing called ultimate leadership. And so day one, I get to hear from an incredible, incredible uh, person. He speaks, does a great job. I'm like, man, this is really good. I'm soaking all this up. And then they send you off into this room with seven other complete strangers. They call these things process groups, all right? And so here I am in this process group with seven complete strangers from all over the country, never met them in my life. And then they they put this licensed counselor in the room with us. They call them facilitators. Let's just call them what they are, okay? Licensed counselor, okay? So this licensed counselor comes in and sits down in the circle. And this licensed counselor starts asking, what do you want to get out of the week? What do you want to get out of the week? And so automatically, like, I'm shutting down. You you know me. I'm shutting down. I'm like, you know what? No, I'm not here to cry. I'm not here to do I'm just... I'm here, I'm going to become a better leader, you tell me how to be a better leader, and then I'm out of here, right? And so Monday they asked me, they said, Ryan, what do you want to get out of the week? And I said, well, I want, I want to be a better encourager. That's my goal. Um, I've shared that with you guys. It's my goal for this year is that I might be a better encourager at home, that I might be a better encourager at work, that I might be a better encourager at Fred Meyer. Way to go, you got bananas, right? I don't know. I just want to be a better encourager. And so I, I sat down and I said that in the, the facilitator, kind of leans in and, well, why do you want to do that? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. So Monday happens. And on Monday, um, I actually called my wife uh, after the day was over. I called my wife and I said, honey, listen, I didn't cry today. Score one for the good guys, right? Like, I was so excited that everyone in my circle was just crying. And here I was like, yes, I didn't break. Good luck. Then Tuesday happened. I hated Tuesday. Because that that facilitator just leaned in even more and started to pull things out that I had hidden so far down in my heart. So much stuff that was just kind of building and building and building that I just pressed down and pressed down and pressed down. And it was one of those where I just was like, nope, not gonna bring this up, not gonna bring this up. 
Dang it, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. I cried more on Tuesday than I have cried in my entire life. As I began to tell my story and I began to, to tell who I was behind this mask, behind this pastor, that I was trying to keep this perfect appearance for seven complete strangers. Why? I don't know. But here I was, and, and immediately I start uh, unpacking all this stuff that I've pushed down so hard and so far, uh, whether it was my own doubt, whether it was my own sin, my own shame, my own guilt, my own pain, the stuff I'd never dealt with, with the passing of my dad and some miscarriages and some other stuff in my life that I've just never dealt with in my life. And as I'm spewing all this out and tears are just flowing down my face, I have this moment of, what do these people think of me? I mean, here's these seven individuals. Some of them are pastors, some of them aren't. Some of them are very successful business people. What do they think of me? It was incredible. Because as I was sharing, you know what they weren't doing? They were going, this guy's screwed up. This guy's a terrible human being. This guy's a pastor? You know what they were doing? They were encouraging. They leaned in to my fear. They leaned into my guilt. They leaned into my pain and my shame and all the things that I've been carrying for so, so long. Instead of questioning me, instead of making fun of me, instead of wondering why I get to do what I get to do, they just encouraged and encouraged and encouraged and they've continued to encourage. And I say all that to say this. If you're here today and you don't have a group of people who are encouraging you through life, I'm just gonna tell you you're gonna get discouraged. And you're gonna push it down and push it down and push it down and you need to let it out. You need to allow God to come into your life and surround you with a group of people who will encourage you on this daily walk we call Christianity. Because it's healthy. It really is healthy. Third thing is this. We might have an anchor in Christ. We might have an anchor in Christ. Verse five. For though I am far from you, my heart is with you. Remember, he, he's in a prison cell and he's riding to this group of people he's never met before and he says, my heart is with you. And this last line, I hope this last line could be the line that we can just kind of resonate with us as we leave this place today. That as we go about our busyness of our work week next week, that this line would be the line that we would look at and say, yes, that's how I want to live. Check this out. He says, and I rejoice. I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. He is 1,300 miles away in a prison cell. And Paul knew that the only thing that could anchor them, the only thing they could hold on to, was Jesus. I mean, the false teachers are running around Colossae and they're saying all sorts of stuff about how Jesus isn't enough. And Paul's saying, no, he is, he is, he is. Wrap your arms around him. Wrap your arms around who he is and what he's done for you. And if you're not quite sure about it, go back and read verses 15 through 23. The text we looked at last week, this beautiful exaltation of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Go back and fall in love with him again or for the first time. You know, one of the most reproduced pieces of religious art is Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. Do you know that Da Vinci spent three years agonizing over the painting? He spent three years, he didn't let anyone look at it, didn't let anyone come and see it. He spent three years painting it. And after three years were up, he invited one of his artist friends to come and look at it. 
Guy walks in the room. He had never seen it before. Walks in the room, sees the finished product. And he starts gushing. He says, Leonardo, I can't take my eyes off of it. It's so realistic. I can't take my eyes off of it. Da Vinci stopped him and said, wait, wait, wait. What is it that you're talking about? He says, the cup. I can't take my eyes off the cup. It is so realistic. Da Vinci picks up a brush, walks over to the painting, and paints out the cup. And he says, nothing, nothing will distract from the central figure, Jesus. Could that be said of you today? That the way that you live, the way that you talk, the way that you act, the way that you do business, the way that you parent, the way that you go to school, that the central figure in your life, the thing that people see when they see you is Jesus. Because we've been called to a mission. Those of us who are followers of Jesus have been called to a mission, to be on mission with Jesus, to show people who Jesus is. And so my hope and goal and desire for us today as a church is that when people see us, people talk to us, people do business with us, they see Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for this time that we have today to maybe reprioritize some things in our life, to look at some areas of our life where we realize that we're not what we need to be if we want to reflect you perfectly in maturity with the end game in mind. And so God, today, my my prayer is that we as a church would get on mission with you. That it's not just about being disciples, that we would make disciples because you've called us to that. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.